if you run a rehearsal well, and you're kind to people, and you get it done, and you stay on time, people stay. I think that that's what I was doing, what's what I must have been doing instinctually, just with a little bit of heat under me economically. <laughs> Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership. And I'm Pierre Carlotwenty, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute of the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And today we bring you our interview with dancer and choreographer Jonah Bocare. Jonah started his dance journey here as a student at the UNC School of the Arts. And uh, straight out of school, he joined the famed Merce Cunningham Company as their youngest ever dancer. He toured the world with the Merce Cunningham Company before creating his own company in Brooklyn. Jonah is also a trained visual artist who dissolves boundaries between the visual arts and dancing. Not surprisingly, therefore, his choreography has been featured in museums all over the world, often in conjunction with or in response to a particular exhibit. In fact, he describes himself not only as a choreographer, but as an exhibiting museum artist. And uh, so finally, he is also a community builder. And he's a businessman. Over the last 18 years, he's opened two affordable studio spaces for interdisciplinary arts in Brooklyn and an arts incubator in Hudson, New York, uh, where he currently resides. And uh, Jonah spoke with us from his home and studio in Hudson, New York, where he was sheltered in place during the pandemic. We started off by asking him how he led himself to follow his own remarkable career path. Perhaps it's just coming from a very, very large family with a father who's a, an immigrant, North African immigrant, and being the eldest of four boys and whatnot. So I, I quickly, on the student life front, found myself uh, poor and, and without means, but with a scholarship. And, and I thought it was very interesting in hindsight that I became an RA, um, you know, at age 17 or something, and then... Uh, so that so that's a, a small thing, but it's as a as basically an adolescent, you are navigating in ways that are still tied to your family or family dynamics. So being sort of the the resident assistant, the hall monitor type um, would would be just kind of a way of joking with you or winking at you and saying, you know, I, I guess I was that there's an orientation to putting on that hat, so to speak. But it also um, I'll share with you now, this is, since we're all adults, is what I did is I, I stopped becoming a dependent that year. And although these were very small amounts of money, I started filing my taxes on my own. So so that was uh, something. I, I don't know. What this is at the age of 17? Yeah. Yeah. So that was something. And, and um, there were ups and downs, but one of the ups was being afforded the opportunity to enter Merce Cunningham's company um, right out of high school. So I was 18. So that was a bit of a windfall, um, a bit of a fluke, just due to kind, type, size of body. And also um, I was replacing, you know, a, a, a man who may have been Hawaiian, who was actually adopted, and I'm half Middle Eastern, so I really looked the part. But I, at age 18, was entering, you know, that that rather dynastic dance company, and I bring that up not to talk about you know careers in the arts or whatever, but it was he was a leader, Merce Cunningham, and in fact a um, 
very iconoclastic, deeply prolific, lifelong artist who could be compared, you know, to Shakespeare. Or I, I mean, it it really was a a phenomenal output of work um, that I was lucky enough to be a part of. What What did you see in him? that you were noticing about his leadership and what lessons did you take from that first experience uh, as a young professional? Uh, a very monastic work style um, would be one word. It's just a, a deeply considered, at the time he was 80 years old and I was 18 years old and I noticed a, a deeply centered and monastic measured leadership style. This was not someone who would freak out or blame or jump to conclusions or anything of the kind, really. It was actually being exposed to such maturity um, that I noted, I, I guess I would say. Um, but it, it was also intimidating, you know, is it, um, sort of like working with Yoda or, so, <laughs> or something. That kind of gravity was not at all casual. And in fact, the, the opportunity and the job were all demanding. Another impact on the receiving side was to see the leadership of Jeffrey James as the executive director, and in particular, him working with the board and his abilities to fundraise. So that that did mark me, and it and it was a just a legendary board for sure, um, which included some of the some of the eldest or eldermost philanthropic families in America. So seeing that all come together when it did was very powerful. I, I set up a nonprofit in a very large loft space of mine uh, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in 2002. So I would have been 20. And that was a little bit of a magpie move, but it the thinking was, you know, it was it was about fourteen hundred square feet of a rehearsal space and fourteen hundred square feet loft. At the time, Bushwick was in what's called the IBZ, the Industrial Business Zone of North Brooklyn, largely Ecuadorian and Yemeni and urban. Although there were schools and factories, but it, it got known and branded for its industrial grit. But at that time, there was a lot of um, extremely hardcore crime and danger. So. I, I was leasing this loft and slightly, I don't know, slightly curious, slightly baffled about the prospect that poor dancers and choreographers and performing artists might be able to benefit from that in terms of what at the time was free space and then became $5 an hour space. So would people go that far out on the L train and receive something like an artistic service for uh, or a subsidy, basically, because I knew that was what I needed to start early steps into choreography. So I was 20. And becoming a founder is, is something that I still would say I uh, think about on a daily basis, is how do you be a good founder? Founding the nonprofit in a very urban part of New York City that traditionally had not, it, it was far, far from the perceived center of New York City, but then had a lot of challenges of every kind, infrastructure, transportation, social, economic. So that's that's something I bring up because it happened on a parallel track uh, to the much more well-documented sort of career with 
Chris Cunningham and Modern Dance and things. So that facility is still there, is still stable, and there are now two others that are modeled after it. Can you, I'm wondering if you can answer the very question that you pose, which is, how do you be a good founder? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm working at it uh, seven years later, but I do like to talk about nonprofit work as a practice, right? I don't know if that resonates, but um, very frequently the performing arts and live work in this country are in the nonprofit sector. And so I think about it in terms of nonprofit practice. And how did you lead yourself then to explore a visual arts career as well? There's an untold narrative going on, and it could be fun to revisit that or to share it openly, is I was saving per diem and using the per diem to go to night school. <laughs> so, mm. so that sort of was the, the way that the allocation was going there is... Uh, basically using what was a livable per diem from dance and theater and then reallocating that to go to art school at night. But it took a great deal of patience, certainly. And, and in fact, it took, just to be transparent with you also about the challenges, is, is that it took seven years to complete. So this was very intermittent, and it was at Parsons and also the new school where I did a double major. The backdrop of, of, let's say, of art history with Cage Cunningham and then with Bob Wilson and, and the Philip Glass legacies, careful savings and then reallocations were then, were then allowing me to go to night school for seven years. So I, I share that just by way of, I don't, I don't know, the, the fastidiousness that that took. And against the more canonical backdrop of of those art legacies, there was also the the backdrop of Bushwick and what was going on there in terms of visual art, practicing visual artists, raw space, installation art, and a very, at that time, raw energy that was going on in the visual arts um, in Bushwick. So I bring that up just because it there was a real contrast or, or, or dichotomy really between the much more celebrated legacies and then the, the more emerging raw edgy scene. So I guess, and to summarize, maybe I was moonlighting. At the time. Well, what I hear in that is um, a number of things. There's, there's a curiosity. It seems like that you have across disciplines. Um, there's a, there's resilience and sort of um, stick to itiveness, I guess, or tenacity to continue uh, through this seven-year process, as you described, I'm my supposition is there's also some vision going on. Let's um, just listening from the outside. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how your work evolved into sort of an interdisciplinary exploration, and kind of what's guiding that true north for you. Well, uh, thanks for the interdisciplinary question. I, I think that earlier on, let's say in the late 40s and early 50s, when these towering painters were encountering composers like John Cage or when Philip Glass and his loft mates would have been experimenting on Worcester Street, which is where they were, that the combustibility of these encounters was very real and very exciting. And it, it paved a way for a Soho that could, and I think of the sculptors and the choreographers, certainly, but it paved a way for a Soho where all of this crossover work was happening 
and then by the 70s the advent of minimalism was then starting to express itself in music and theater so i was by the time i was involved they were booking the show you know this was, <laughs> this was really not to not at all to be crass but the the participation that i was lucky enough to have was you know there was one year where we signed a 48 week contract so these were very successful legacies that had started as very experimental and you use the word interdisciplinary and that was really the heart of it for me was seeing that Warhol had been involved and Rauschenberg had been involved and that this uh, appetite this adventurous aesthetic and appetite I I guess I had wanted to find it in my in my day and and in my place and in my time, which at that time was, was Bushwick and remains Bushwick. So it seemed to me to need a software update or, or just a, a reboot in terms of um, in terms of its expression present day. You know, you mentioned tenacity. Is keeping the small performance space open, these were 75-seat spaces. Some years in, Bushwick had exploded. There had been a seismic shift in artist workspace at the time. And massive, from my perspective, massive amounts of gentrification around the L train. So the backdrop shifted and what had been very edgy became a proliferation of condos and zoning completely. And the zoning had been lifted from five stories, I believe, to 40. So that's something. And what that did is it, crea- it created pressure, it created compression on the mission of the nonprofit, which was affordable space. So I ended up being approached by a developer and then by another artist to participate in a second space, which paradoxically was further into Manhattan. It was in Williamsburg. And because the mission was affordable space, we, we embarked on that with the board. I bring that up because of it then, you know, in my 20s involved a capital campaign. And it was, a, it ended up being a successful capital campaign, but the, this was, these were really hair-raising times, actually. <laughs> and, and so it, for me, it was a lot about working hand over hand with what was becoming a very special board and a very working board. And then later on, a, a philanthropic board. But I bring that up because it's a marker, was a capital campaign, and then the purchase of a facility um, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is still standing. They're both still standing, but it was a wild ride. It it was definitely a wild ride. You know, those are some, those are the expressions of, I don't know, like a a little bit of a first-generation artist who had seen his father struggle and, and have a little bit of a trampoline existence, and so I... These opportunities presented themselves, and I tend to just work like hell and try, <laughs> try to make them happen, um, honestly. But So, Jonah, would you say that's just how you're wired and, and who you are as a person, or did you d- develop that sort of um, you know, energy and tenacity as you, as you matured? Like, where'd that come from for you? I will share, and, and I, I think this can stay recorded, my father experienced bankruptcy and that that weighed very heavily on I think all of his children but then me being an eldest this was a a tough uh, inheritance how old were you when it occurred um let's see that would have been 13 
So it led, I, I, made, I didn't want to start there, but that led to things like scholarships and work and, and residence. In this case, I think the people tend to frame it in terms of an entrepreneurial thinking, but I don't see it that way at all. I see it as an artistic wayfinder or, or compass and very often a survival mechanism. Did you inherit, you mentioned, well, you mentioned ethnicity early in our conversation and now sure. and your cultural background. Do you think that informs that spirit you're talking about now? Well, I think being bicultural is, you know, is I, I always wish to be accurate. So my mother's family, you know, was deeply immersed in theater and regional theater in the U.S. So that, that was very present and it helped, I think, in terms of fluency with theater. Um, but the cultural side that I tend to think about is definitely my father's North Africa and his family because they were in the living room and, and next door and whatnot. Um, there was a family restaurant. And so those cultural influences were very um, palpable and they, they added a whole flair and negotiation and humor and strength at times. So I do bring that up because it, it was so it, it was so formative. And then later on, not only on stage, but then in terms of navigating institutions and politics and everything, I, I can see much later in hindsight how that allowed an adaptability, you know, the gift of gab or something. It's just like, mm. and, and being able to see or having seen people from many cultures right from the get-go. How would you describe yourself as a leader and also as a boss, since you do have staff? And what have you still to learn? Oh, these are, that's good. We should, we should go there. I don't know. Oh, this is outside the comfort zone, but the, I think for the first decade, being the founder who then had employees, I'm not sure that was a walk in the park <laughs> between whatever, you know, age 20 to 30. I think that was, uh, I think that was actually just, could this nonprofit survive? But in in the phases and in the life cycle of a nonprofit, and and myself included, learning about the economics of this and the function of fundraising, of an annual benefit, of a board, of governing, um, you know that that was really where a lot of my time was was going. It still does. The one thing I can say is is transparency. Is that actually. We make everything transparent. I, I do think that may come from me, but there is an abundance of communication and a transparency with money that was important to me because I'd seen, especially in dance, this you know glorification of like financial precarity and you know like let's all be in the poor tribe and the whole, you know, <laughs> they know this logic is. And it's really, it, it goes back to the archetype. It's no one's fault. It goes back to the archetypes and the image and the film, films that have held up that archetype. And that's fine. Why not? But it's almost a leftover romanticism or something where, in fact, you know, what's, what is it? iPod was the first, but then Spotify later, you know, that these people hire dancers and get fit and on and on. So dance is not separate from the culture. That's really my my belief is dance is never separate from the culture. But 
I guess I was just trying to apply being good in, in the front of a rehearsal to being good in the front of an organization, if that makes sense. That's all I would have known how to do, really, is if you run a rehearsal well and you're kind to people and you get it done and you stay on time and people stay, I think that that's what I was doing, what's, what I must have been doing instinctually, just with a little bit of um, heat under me economically <laughs> so, so but that's that's what it is and i um i would say that in the last three to five years um i've calmed down a lot actually is the capital campaign you know was was not a walk in the park and i think it contained a lot of challenge i think that we were overextended and there was always a kind of threshold at which things were too much you know running an organization and then also maintaining a choreography, visual art crossover type of profile. I mean, there was always the brink of too much. And that has really um, walked back and softened or come in, come into balance, I would say. Um, which is probably age, but it's also like, well, the appetite for stress, you know, it, it's, I think we all mature, we're always growing. And then a big one is finding the people that you trust and delegating. So it's really sort of finding the team. How are you leading through what is happening currently? And what role do you think arts leaders will have after this episode in our global history? So I think the, there is a, a butterfly effect that is not subtle that is happening between COVID-19 and the arts and artists and the economics that tie us together and where I, where my thinking just cannot catch up, to, to be frank, is how public assembly and also the transmission of live work with audiences, how we're going to innovate around them. Because I know there's a lot of attention on the telepresence and the Zoom and, you know, and, and streaming, and we should. We should keep attention on that. But replacing the live is where... I just don't have that riddle solved, although I'm, I'm thinking about it all the time. And you may know I, I've dabbled in apps. But so, so the COVID-19, I, I really don't have any answers, but I am these days kind of full throttle keeping the organization open. You know, and we, we've submitted, as of today's dates, 19 relief grants. Um, so, yeah, which for our, our size is, uh, you know, the team's a little fried these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're remote and we're, we're fried. So. Are you speaking to us from upstate or where are you now? Uh, I'm in Hudson, New York. You're in Hudson, in, okay. Yeah, attempting to keep our festival in at or around Labor Day responsive. And actually, it is, I will say it's it's financially healthy. We have, it's fully funded. It's in escrow. The curator. Congratulations. Wow. That's amazing. Well, it's. Yeah, I, I like to do these little Houdini things where we're like, we stay the right size and try to stay on track and try to have good people and send good waves. But I'm, I credit us to the curator on that one. It's it's Aaron. And this is really his um, curatorial flex. And, and I, I would hope to grow him as a leader um, because I see just huge potential in him and he's always a step ahead. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation from Hudson where... Also, just on the community side, is, is by being here, staying here, showing up, um, I think that trust is built, too. 
You know, Rob, what I love about how this interview ends is that uh, he ends with a shout out to his curator and Aaron Levi Garvey. And right. I think that just captures so much of what he's like, which is he is inherently generous and clearly he's a consistent mentor. He likes other artists to succeed. Oh, I, I agree. He um, he knows his story. He knows kind of where he came from and where he's going. And he, in almost every answer uh, to our queries, he wove in the, the aspects of his work and why it's there for a reason. He always gave the why. And that's something I talk about with leadership a lot is to know your why. And that's as critical and as crucial to know your what, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And he's very good. And I, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but constantly weaving in his why and his story uh, and his people, you know, community is so important to him. I just found that very fascinating. Yeah, which I guess is certainly a crucial way to build followership, right? If you can articulate your why and make it interesting to the listener, it's easier to get a followership. Correct. And he's doing it. I mean, you hear his his style through the the interview, just listening to it. He's not a big, loud, boisterous cheerleader, you know, let me get you hired, wired and excited and mm-hmm. and inspired. He's very gentle. He, he really relies a lot on, I think, graciousness treating people with respect and dignity and um, and then holding space in, in that way. And, it, and he's done a remarkable job of building the right relationships. It just goes to show you, you can be a quiet leader. You can be a loud leader. There's no right way that it has to happen. Hmm. But a certain genuineness and commitment, like the fact that he has, even through the pandemic, he's got his funding lined up for the Hudson Eye Festival in Hudson. Amazing. And committed to staying in the community Showing his that he was throwing down deep roots there is uh, is kind of incredible. Yeah, it's not the art center of the world, you know. It's Hudson, New York. He 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 keeps an eye on. To me, it sounds like he keeps an eye on possibility, and has just this drive to keep going. You know, it's quiet, but it's strong, and he's willing to be adaptable, and sees opportunities as they come, and and he just. Um, He's got an innate quality that he wants to just keep going, keep going, keep going in a very, very easy mannered way. Well, I I really enjoyed spending time with him in this interview, as I'm pretty sure you did. Yes. Um, And I was amazed he, you know, writing 19 grant proposals that week that we talked to him, I was amazed he made time for us. (laughs) Maybe that's why he was so quiet. (laughs) Maybe on the list of priorities, we must have been pretty low. Thank you, Jonah. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Jonah, please go to uncsa.edu slash artists as leader. And if you enjoyed this episode and aren't already subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. Subscribe. Yeah. Of upcoming interviews with inspiring artist leaders. We'd also love to hear your ideas about other artist leaders you know in your community or just have heard of in general that you'd like us to profile in future episodes. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to visit us on our Facebook page at Keenan Institute for the Arts, and there you can leave us your comments and suggestions. Special thanks to Eric Bucci, and our theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. <laughs>